The gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 8, and I will be reading verses 26 through 39. Luke, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. This is the healing of the demon-possessed man. They sailed in the regions of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man many times. It had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them. And he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened... They ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So they got into the boat and left. The man whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home. Tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all the town how much Jesus had done for him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The uh, famous English essayist and poet, Charles Lamb, and I'll, I'll mention him on another occasion, Charles Lamb stated this. He says, I am determined that my children shall be brought up in their father's religion if they can find what it was. That's the problem, isn't it? If they can find what the religion is, Do people look at you and know what you are and what you believe? That's the problem, isn't it? In the modern world, it really is, and in every age, I suppose, it is the task of living the life of the Christian so that our children and friends know our convictions and our manner of life to be that of followers of Jesus Christ. Our Christianity, of course, must be possessed, or as the phrase is today, we must take ownership of it. 
This sermon is in many ways a sequel to last week's sermon. And last week I, I gave attention to the fact that every believer's justification, or as I put it then, and I believe a better word, every believer's rectification is secured through faith in Jesus Christ. Or as I mentioned in the sermon and my change of mind, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Your faith receives what Christ did for you. That's what it means to be a Christian, receiving God's gift in Jesus Christ, receiving Christ. Your faith, your faith receives the finished work of Christ who rectifies us or justifies us as sinners. Salvation is entirely of God and it is a gift. I, I hope you understand that. I've spent time through the years preaching that. Very simple, but very important. Salvation is God's gift to you. You will never get your place to the place in your life where you are morally acceptable to God. You must indeed receive what God has done for you in Christ. You see, Jesus paid the price for your sins. Someone has said that salvation is uh, free but at the same time, it is entirely costly. It costs Christ everything, even his life. Now, the reason that this is a companion sermon to last week is because I'm turning now to what it costs you. I'm turning our attention to the cost of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ in the modern world? Well, it means the same thing it did in the first century. We have different dress and different faces on thing, but things, but it means the same thing. What does it mean for you to, to follow Christ and to live out what you have received through faith in him? Today, I want you to see this. Your response to God's grace is to be a total response. No reservations. If you would follow Christ, you must deny yourself, as the gospels say, take up your cross daily and follow him. The name Christian demands your all, your life. In fact, it is to be hid in Christ. At this point in this sermon, I'm, I'm a bit stymied now how to proceed on this in some ways. Uh, how do I go forward with this? I looked at the text and there's so much here and I can't preach it all. I'm somewhat like uh, a mosquito uh, in a nudist colony. I don't know exactly where to begin. There's so much there. I'll begin this way. I have been baffled. You think this is not germane, but it is. I have been baffled by President Obama's talk of negative liberties. That's when he said that the Constitution is a charter of negative liberties. Now, actually, I have puzzled over that. I do not know what that means. To have a negative liberty and to interpret the Constitution that way. And I'm not a constitutional scholar, but he is. Maybe I'll, I'll have to uh, read more on the subject. But it seems to me that liberty which comes from God, or in the civil realm, from God through our Constitution, is a grant or a privilege, or even a right. 
and there is nothing negative about it. You either have liberty to do something or to be what you are, or you don't. There's no way in between. Liberty is always positive, in other words. You have it or you don't. Now, as a Christian, you do not have certain liberties to live any way you want. But, of course, that's not liberty. Any liberty that you have in Christ is a positive grant. And that's what the word liberty means. But there are certain things that are outside the bounds of Christian freedom and Christian liberty. And Paul is dealing with that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 uh, to the end of the text, which is in verse 32. He's dealing with what you are to be, but in order to tell you what you ought to be and the liberties you have, he must indeed sketch what is not liberty. He says in verse 17 through verses 19, and let me read that again to you. So I tell you this, he says in chapter 4, verse 17, and insist on in the Lord, but that you must no longer live as Gentiles do. Now, the word Gentile here is a normal word for Gentile, and sometimes it just simply is translated as Gentile, as such as Gentile Christians. But in this context, the word Gentile means pagan. He's not talking about believers from that background. He's talking about those who are still pagan. He says, you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so that to indulge in every kind of impurity with a consensual lust for more. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, why are the Gentiles futile in their minds? Because they are separated, he says, from God. They are, if you will, ungodly. Ungodly in the sense that I'm talking about here doesn't necessarily have a moral connotation or a description of a behavior. It just means that a person is not attached to God. They don't believe in God. But there are consequences for not believing in God. There are consequences for not believing in God. And we see it all around us in our society. You are left to your own devices to begin with. And so, therefore, one of your devices or choices is not to have the knowledge of God, but you are ignorant of God. We are in an absolute state of moral confusion in America. We're in an absolute state of moral confusion, and we have been for a long, long time. You don't necessarily have to be in a Christian, every person in society, to have a moral consensus. And as Francis Schaeffer so described up until 
the 60s, there was pretty much a Christian moral consensus in this country whether people were Christian or not. But we've reached a tipping point. And we find today that Christians are no longer the mainstream culture, but they are the counterculture. We have entered into a time of moral and religious ignorance. There is absolute confusion in the public realm when it comes to what is right and what is wrong. Look at everything that goes under uh, the legislative agenda today. It's fighting about moral values in every case, at every point. You cannot separate politics and morality. The ancient Greeks knew this. Both Aristotle and Plato, for instance, the two most famous philosophers of all time, when they discussed politics, they also knew that you could not have a good society without good people. So therefore, they tied morality and politics together. And in order to have a good leader, that leader must be moral and have a moral vision. They must be able to see, says Plato, they must be able to see the good and know what it is. But we've lost that. Many people say that the good in Plato's philosophy is God. And when you no longer see God, you, you, you have no choice but to enter into a moral morass, a moral ignorance. And what happens here in the text, as Paul goes on to say here, there is a hardness of heart that takes over with things pertaining to God. Remember, this is hearkening back, if you will. I'm sure Paul knew that when he penned this, that, it was, that you would have in your mind, as his listeners did, Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against God. They hardened their heart against God. And so hardness of heart is also, notice how much resistance there is to the good. Why is there resistance to the good? When you are ignorant, you also fall into what I will call hardness of heart towards that which is good and beautiful and true. Notice what we're having a problem with today. We're having a problem with truth, aren't we? We're told there's no such thing as, as truth per se. Everything is subjective. We're told that, we're, that there's no such thing as good. Good is in the eye of beholder, really, is it? And we are told certainly, we're told certainly in the sense that we're talking about here. That morality is a very subjective thing, and you have yours and I have mine. You cannot run a society that way, can you? Look what is happening around the world. As I speak to you, they are rioting in many countries, even Brazil. People are in the streets due to corruption of government. People are in the streets. We've lost as it says in the text, a sense of morality. We've lost moral sensitivity. A kind of coarseness which people lament has overtaken. Paul says, you are not to live that way. You're not to be in that kind of ignorance. You do know there's such a thing as truth. You may not know all truth. And you certainly may not know the truth in science or math or those things that you must study to acquire. But you have received Christ who is the truth and that you know, in this case, who God is and what he demands of you. 
You should not be ignorant with pertaining to morals. You should not have a hard heart that is closed to the things of God. And you should be highly sensitive to what God wants for you in your life. Paul goes on to say they've given themselves over, if you will, to sensuality. I had a discussion with a couple of my friends at General Assembly, and we were sitting out at late at night, uh, about uh, midnight, uh, out in front of the hotel on some wicker uh, seats. Uh, it was a nice evening, and uh, we sat out there. They were have, having a convention also with the military, so there were a bunch of military people running around. And so as we sat there, we were talking about some of these things. And um, I told them I had come to the conclusion that sexuality drives almost the whole shooting caboodle today. Your sexuality. Now, we're sexual beings. We cannot not, not relate sexually. But I want you to know how much of our politics today is driven by sensuality. By our passions. Some people say to me, Pastor, things seem so unreasonable. It seems as plain as a nose on your face. It is if you're operating on the realm of the rational. But when you are driven by your sensual feelings and your sexuality, you do not think rationally. This is appalling to believe that outside groups can come into our public schools and sexualize our 7th and 8th and ninth graders and steal their innocence from them. That is child abuse. But we are told as child abuse not to let them do it. How perverse we have become. This is moral confusion. Now what, what the apostle says, put off your old self. You have no right to your old self. You have been baptized with Christ and you have been risen with Christ. You left the old life behind when you came to Christ. You now know God as God has revealed himself in Christ. And you have certain obligations as a Christian. And this is where, this is where true religion begins. Living of it. Possessing of it, if you will, owning it, making it our own. What are you to own? You're to own putting away falsehood and to speak the truth to your neighbor, says the apostle here in this text. Put away falsehood. That which is false, that which is unreal. You know, in the physical realm, if you don't obey the laws of physics, you will end your life rather quickly. You can't jump off of a cliff, can you, without any aid and expect to survive if it's, say, more than 50 feet anyway. You probably won't survive. You can't jump off of a cliff, and yet we are willing to jump off of moral cliffs. This is falsehood, and we are to speak the truth to our neighbors. He says, put away falsehood and speak truth to your neighbor in Christ. Why does we are to do this? Because we are one body. We're different. We fellowship together. The precious thing that I'm talking about at General Assembly Fellowship is a New Testament called koinonia. That's what we have and that's what is most precious. 
to know that you have a fellowship which sustains you and strengthens you and encourages you in Christ. And in order to have that kind of fellowship, you must speak truth to one another. You cannot have fellowship with a false person under any circumstance. You can't do business with a false person. You can't conduct any kind of transaction with a false person. Therefore, in order for us to have that genuine, true koinonia koinonia in the New Testament, the fellowship of the saints, we are to put away falsehood and to speak truth to one another. Let me tell you what else is needed. We must put away our propensity to wrath. Now, we are to be angry about certain things. I think if you love certain things, you will hate certain things. I think if you care about certain things, you will get angry. So notice what the apostle is talking about. In another place, he says, be angry and sin not. But I think the reason the apostle brings up anger here is because in all cases, you are more vulnerable to be out of control than at any other time in your life. Do not, he says, let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with it. In your anger, he says, do not sin. You see, anger is a kind of mother attitude, which can easily escalate into sinful behavior. Now, you, you lose control when you're angry, don't you? You lose control when you're angry. You know that. But in every case, when we are in a state of anger, we have a warning here to be concerned about. Otherwise, we will jeopardize our self-control. I've been reading a book. It's a strange book maybe to some people. Why I would read a book like uh, Gustave Le Bon's uh, famous work of the 19th century. It's called The Crowd, Study of the Popular Mind. And I find it to be very beneficial because there, there, there are crowds... And of course, there are crowds, if you will, that are mobs. A crowd or a mob, in every case when it is assembled, is non-moral, he says. Morality goes out the window when you get a crowd together, or particularly a mob. Like the wild, wild west, lynching mob. Morality, even among decent people, goes out the window, that's why I think the Bible says, do not follow a multitude to sin. Be careful. And he says the reason that a crowd is non-moral is because it is mindless. You kind of surrender your mind to the whole process. That makes then everyone impulsive and therefore explosive. And if that is the case, then a crowd or a mob, you must be careful when you are in those situations. What you surrender yourself to. Let me say that when you are angry, you're pretty much in the state of the mob or the crowd. Positive things can be done, but also negative things. So the apostle here says, you must control your anger. Because anger, says the apostle, is an opportunity for the devil to take advantage of you. There's a third thing here you must put away. Do not steal, but work with your hands. 
work. I can remember looking in my grandfather's, I stayed with my grandfather for about four years, my aunt, when I was small, from about the age of three to seven. Now, I remember walking through that little farmhouse on top of a mountain. I was the only kid for miles. I played by myself, whatever. My wife says it's made me odd. (laughs) It probably did. All my oddities I attribute to that. Nonetheless, I remember looking at a little plaque, a little wooden plaque that you pick up in a novelty roadside place that was on the board, and it said, so you think the world owes you a living. So I grew up believing that you had to root hog or die. You had to be self-reliant. And that obviously paid some, some role in that. You think the world owes you a living. I answered it in the negative. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I have to learn to work. I have to become self-reliant. But we're answering that in the opposite direction today, aren't we? It's a moral problem. It's because we're not attached to God that we answer that that way. Listen, work is useful. You will have no self-worth if you're able to work and you don't do it. You won't. It's just that simple. I have a friend who wrote a book on work called Pro-Existence, where he sees work in a positive light. Unless you, unless you have that, you, don't, you struggle with self-worth. It's important that we teach our children self-reliance. It's a godly thing to do. More and more we find in our society that is not the case. Listen, it will collapse without the work ethic. It can't continue. California is ready to fall in the sea, as far as I can see, in terms of finances. The state is in a mess. That beautiful, most beautiful probably of states, landscape-wise, perfect weather. But at every level, cities are bankrupt, and the whole state cannot meet its obligations. So what do they do? They keep raising the ante. Taxes go up. More business go to Idaho and to Arizona. And so in California now, you have a very rich group of people living along the coast, depending on technology in Hollywood, and a very poor interior. Very poor. Work is useful. And work is liberating. It enables you to be able to contribute to the needs of others. Work is, a, is, a, is, is true liberty. It frees you up to make choices and to be able to give to other people. Money means choices. Money means choices. If you have some money, you can make a choice about things, whether to go on vacation or not, or whether to send your kids to Chapel Field or not. Of course, Coach is so generous. Doesn't take much. But it's true. It's true. Work is liberating. Notice the apostle talks about work and how important it is. But now this is all not just putting away things. He says in verse 24, put on some things. 
What do we put on? He says, helpful speech. He says, build each other up, encourage one another. Now, I know that this is a very difficult thing to do because we have a desire to put people down in private because it puts us up. If we can talk someone down in private, in the talking down, we in some ways are commenting our own self-esteem. I need to put myself up by putting someone down. That's the way the world works. That's, that's trash from the world. We are to draw alongside of each other and encourage one another in our speech. Build each other up, says the apostle. Why? Because we are one body in Christ. And he says, be kind and compassionate in verse 32 to one another, forgiving each other as you have been forgiven. Kind and compassionate. I'm tempted before I leave Westminster to devote one entire sermon to kindness. Kindness. It is so needed. It is so much in short supply. Kindness and compassion. The scripture says it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. How much more are we to be kind? How much more are we to be kind? Kindness is a wonderful virtue, very much needed in the modern world. We are to put on, if you will, kindness and compassion. And the bottom line, he says in verse 23, is that we are to put on a new mind, or let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The new mind here, of course, is an attitude adjustment. I heard uh, someone say to a particular person that I know, and I didn't say it to the person, you need an attitude adjustment. (laughs) Well, this indeed is required to live the Christian life. And that is what the Spirit of God is doing in our hearts and lives. There are two ways in life. And that's what the apostle is saying here. There are only two ways. You're going to live like the Gentiles in your ungodly estate, hating and devouring one another. Or you're going to live as a Christian. One way is living in sensuality and uncontrolled appetites. Appetites. Uncontrolled appetites. I think that's where we are. It's wholesale. We've always had it, but you know, we're talking about the numbers. The numbers add up after a while when everyone lives for themselves. The numbers add up and there's a tipping point in any society. Let me go back to the mosquito. If you live for yourself and your appetites are uncontrolled, you're very vulnerable. Now, I've done a little horseback research with mosquitoes, and I'm doing more and more this time of year. So I walk through the fields and try to take a nap. I've noticed this, that a mosquito that's not very hungry, you you have a hard time with, because they're patient. They'll get you when you're asleep. But if a mosquito is really hungry, they won't leave you alone. And I got one this morning. 
I ended his life. He was just so desperate for a meal. His appetites were out of control. The beasts of the field, the insects of the land, all pretty much operate on whether I'm hungry or not. That makes them vulnerable, doesn't it? They live after their appetites. Paul is saying, if you live in that way, you are headed for destruction. But if you live according to Jesus Christ and the new mind and the new man and the new creation, you not only understand what is right and wrong, what is good and beautiful, not perfectly, but you have a life in Christ that you know the end thereof is eternal life. That's the reason Jesus said very simply in the invitation, and let me quote it again as I conclude this sermon. He said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He gave his all for us so that we indeed might give our all to him to that way that leads to life. No longer being futile in our minds, but having the mind of Christ. Praise be to God for his word. Amen.